This program is brought to you by Genly Productions. At genlyproductions.com, you can find resources to nourish and inspire, including home retreat kits, home study courses, books, and accessories. You can also join our free Emerging Icons video series, or sign up to get good mail the old-fashioned way and receive our full-color, magazine-ish catalog in your mailbox. Genly Productions. Hold the possibilities in your hands. I'm Jen Lee, and you're listening to Retrospective. Today, I'm so excited to be here with Diana Speckler, who's a novelist and the author of Who by Fire and Skinny. Hi, Diana. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I've been really excited to have this conversation with you for a while. I think one of the things that makes you an interesting person to me to talk to is that in addition to doing your fiction writing and your novels, you also do nonfiction writing and you also do nonfiction storytelling on stage. And the whole the whole idea about story and fact and fiction I think is really, really interesting. Um, I was thinking on my way over here about how fiction makes me nervous, like as a writer. When I'm doing a nonfiction story, I'm really clear about what I'm telling people and what I'm not telling people. But when I write fiction, I'm always worried that my secrets are going to slip out when I'm not paying attention. Do you know what I mean? I, I think that fiction is the place where your secrets do come out. And it's funny because you would think that nonfiction would be the place where we're doing the most truth telling. But in my experience, when I'm feeling sort of closed off, all I can do is write nonfiction. I can only do fiction when I'm ready to really open up, when I really have something to say. Um, Your secrets definitely come out in fiction. And it's funny, I mean, I always tell, you know, I teach a lot of writing classes. I always tell my writing students, um, when you're writing fiction, in a way you're hiding, you know, in a way that it's, um, you have a veil up because you're making the stories up. The plot lines are untrue, but if you're not emotionally forthcoming, the, the it's not going to work. So fiction is emotionally true and untrue only on the plot level. Hmm. It's really interesting. And, um, I finished reading your last novel, Skinny, and I could tell, this is how I could tell I was enjoying it. One morning, I was up at like 6 a.m. and I had actually was trying to find ways to prop up my Kindle so I could keep reading while I was doing my yoga, which, you know, like multitasking breaks all the yoga rules. Oh, yes. (laughs) But I was like, I think I can like get a few more pages in. (laughs) But um, I think it's okay to read while you're doing yoga. I think maybe like you wouldn't want to, you know, drink a beer while doing yoga. (laughs) I think actually it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to read a novel in Down Dog. That's good. That's good. I um, It was interesting. I was reading an article that you did maybe for Wall Street Journal about when you got the book deal for that and how it was kind of a different scenario, a different way to be seen because you were dealing with semi-autobiographical material. 
So what is that like when you're writing about something where you have some parallels in your life, but you still have this fictitious piece? I'm just wondering, like, how do you prepare yourself to be seen that way or to even be misconstrued? Because I would, you're leaving up to the readers to imagine which part is autobiographical yeah. and which part isn't. This was... Yeah, and Skinny was really hard for me. So it was, um, it's a novel about a woman who is not overweight, but she thinks she is. And she spends a summer working at a weight loss camp to solve a family mystery. And it was kind of an experiment for me, or at least a departure, because um, whenever I write a novel, like the first time and the second time, I was doing it to sort of unburden myself of something that was weighing on me at the time and and the first time when I wrote who by fire what was weighing on me was religion I was in my young 20s kind of the time where a lot of people struggle with what religion means to them and and um how you deal with separating from your family if your religious beliefs don't line up with theirs and um I was really really struggling with that and the book was born of that and it was a totally made-up story um but by the time I finished the the novel, um, it's hard to say if it was because of the novel or just because so many years had passed, like, you know, four years had passed, but I was unburdened. And that has sort of become my process. Um, I've always had issues with body image and, you know, sort of they've sort of manifested in different ways throughout my life. But when I started writing skinny, I was really dealing with, with those things. Or when I, when I conceptualized skinny, I was really dealing with body image issues. And the reason the book was sort of a departure for me was because I didn't make a lot of it up. I, I really just wanted to try to write the truth on multiple levels. And um, I did work at a weight loss camp. I did it for research. I went for 10 weeks undercover. I was a counselor. Um, actually, you heard me tell a story about it on stage. Yeah. <laughs> and um, of course, for the sake of um, storytelling in the novel, I, I amped up the drama. But um, a lot of it was true. I mean, I have a character in there who is a cross between two ex-boyfriends who were both in my life at the time, um, the sort of obsessing overweight that the protagonist does while she's at the camp because she's surrounded by this diet environment is pretty much true, pretty much true to what happened to me. And so when I finished that book, I'm not going to say I felt unburdened. You know, I still have body image issues, but they were different. And, And as they sort of always are throughout my life, they change all the time. Um, and then when I realized that that book was actually going to come out, I wanted to die (laughs) and I, I did not know how to handle it. And, um, I, I mean, I went to therapy, started going to therapy. I had nightmares. I just did not know what to do with the fact that this was going to be out, you know, seeing the light of day. It's personal enough as it is to publish any novel, but this one, um, it, it felt like I was, taking off my clothes and standing in in public just naked i mean it felt like just unimaginable to me that this was going to happen so did you have like did you have scenarios playing out in your mind like were you playing out movies about what people were doing after they read it or who was going to disown you or yeah 
yeah, yeah, just imagining everybody I know kind of seeing me naked was horrifying to me. And and to be honest, um, you know, it came out, there were some good things and some bad things about, about it coming out. But to be honest, I'm still not over that feeling. Like, I still feel just utterly exposed by that book. And when people tell me, like, when you told me you were reading it, I cringed. I still cringe when I know people I know are reading my book. Mm. Well, I think there's, Okay, so as you say that, I'm thinking of you telling that story on stage as a camp counselor. And I think about some of my own stories. And there, there's a way that when you take any kind of section of your history or any aspect of your life and bring it up, it starts to tell about it more in depth. All of a sudden, people are looking at you through a different lens. So I would imagine if I were going to introduce a book at a book reading called Skinny, all of a sudden I would think there's a certain lens. All of a sudden everyone's looking at my body in a way they maybe weren't before the way, like, this comes to my mind when I talk about, I don't know, like working as a Mary Kay beauty consultant. All of a sudden I'm like, everyone is automatically going to look at my makeup and be like, is she wearing lipstick? Is she not wearing lipstick? How does she look? I love that story. You know, can I picture her in a suit? Um, so it's interesting how by just even telling someone a title or a concept, how there's kind of an immediate filter that people are looking at you through. Absolutely. Um, I really love your Mary Kay story (laughs) (laughs) and your makeup looks great. (laughs) I didn't wear any for a lot of years. I was like, it was a little bit like. It's, it's too extreme to call it post-traumatic stress, but um, it was post-something, you know? I totally know. It took yeah. a long time to come back around and be able to... You wanted to reinvent yourself. Feel normal or and feel like I was doing something by choice or, yeah. Right. So what do you, what do, you do? How do you handle that crumbly part of letting yourself be seen? You know... Um, Storytelling has actually helped me a lot with that, but I I would just say in general, I mean, I've been writing forever, my whole life, I've been writing, it's the only thing I've ever wanted to do, I've been writing for publication for about a decade, a little more, and I learned a long time ago, because of that, that a big part of putting yourself out there is that not everyone's going to like you, that people are going to form opinions of you, that people are going to have judgments of you, and I, I never get used to that. But I have developed some sort of like I have like like a like a tough guy per- attitude that I can sort of access when I need to. Where I'm like I don't can I swear I don't yeah. <laughs> I'm like I don't give a shit you know I totally give a shit but I can put up that front like I don't give a shit I'm putting it out here I don't care I don't care and um, it's a protective device and it works partially. <laughs> um, so that's one thing. I, I would say another thing is that I have trained myself, not always, but for the most part at this point in my career, to not think about other people when I'm writing. I think it's really detrimental to the creative process to think about your your audience too much while you're writing. Or I should, I should rephrase that. You should think about your audience because you're not writing in a journal. But 
you shouldn't be thinking about your mom. <laughs> you shouldn't be thinking about, you know, your ex-boyfriend who you're sure is going to read everything that you put out there or whoever it is who makes you not want to say the things you want to say. That's not the person you should be thinking about when you're working. So have you ever had to deal with people being upset inside your close circles of belonging? Um, yes. Um, I think it's, my writing can be uncomfortable for my family, definitely. It's uncomfortable for me, so I'm sure it's uncomfortable for them. Um, but I also think at this point, they pretty much just get that this is how it is, you know. And, I, I, you know, there's that saying, I'm not even sure who, who can be credited with it, but somebody said um, that if anybody ever criticizes you for not telling it like it was, you can say, you write it. Mm-hmm. You do it. And um, I try to tell, I try to remind myself of that when I feel like people are judging me. And and that's not just um, the people who love me. That's even like anytime I write something, I mean, you know, the internet is just brutal. I mean, commenters are always going to make me feel bad, make me feel like I shouldn't, make me second guess my work, make me feel like I shouldn't have written what I wrote. So you read the comments? Yeah, voraciously. <laughs> to my detriment. And... Um, and it's hard because there there are a lot of um, angry people on there with their own agendas. I mean, we're all angry people, but they have their own agendas that I'm never going to understand, and they criticize me for reasons I'm never going to understand. So I just put out a story. It wasn't even about me. Last week, I put out a story, um, uh, a profile of someone else, um, and a commenter wrote, Diana Speckler is creepy. And... I don't know why. I mean, the story had nothing to do with me, really. And um, I don't know if that person knows who I am or what. But then I started to think, just for a second, am I creepy? Maybe I'm creepy. I don't know. I've never really thought about myself as creepy. Like, nobody's ever called me that before. But, like, maybe I'm missing something. I don't know. <laughs> and I just think... I'm only it's, laughing because this is the exact <laughs> conversation I would be having yeah. in that sort of situation. It's impossible not to because... Um, you know, they say you remember all the bad things people say about you, even when you don't remember all the compliments. And um, I have like this rational side of my brain that's like, this is ridiculous. Why am I paying attention to what internet commenters say about me or about my writing? Like, they're not even all they're doing is commenting on things on the internet. Um, but at the same time, uh, it still hurts. I can't get I can't get 100 percent past it. Mm. So then, how would you describe what? For you, what is this driving impulse that has you keep writing in the face of angry commenters and <laughs> familial disapproval or discomfort? And, and what has you keep also like pressing into different mediums? Like, What is it that keeps you saying, I'm going to step on stage, I'm going to right. publish? Well, stepping on stage didn't happen for me until a year and a half ago. I'm very new to storytelling on stage, and it was um, such a godsend for me. Um, my background originally, well, okay, originally, originally, I was I was a poet when I was a kid. That was what I did. I just wrote poems all the time um, and little stories when I was a kid, and um, it was just part of me always. I never remember a time when I wasn't writing. I, I When people ask me why I write, I don't even know how to answer the question. It's just, I mean, it's just in my limbic system. I can't, um, 
I can't really explain it. And, and, and in fact, when people say to me, you know, I have a lot of students have been teaching for a long time. So people will say to me like something like, do you think I should be a writer? And, I, and it always like the question always throws me because I can't imagine why you would do it if you're questioning it. You know, I, I mean, I never, I never really thought there was another option and, and it's hard to explain, but I, so since I was a little kid, I've been writing and, and then toward the end of high school, I started writing short stories. I went to college, majored in creative writing. I got really into fiction writing as a college student and sort of, um, decided I wanted to go to MFA program right out of college. And then I decided between poetry and fiction and I, I picked fiction and poetry fell by the wayside, which is good for everybody. Um, I was not a good poet and I, so I started writing fiction and um, learned how to write short stories when I was in grad school and then started the not with the first novel. Um, and I'm, I think there are a lot of different tra- trajectories. It's sort of, it is like, I mean, I think what's great about your podcast and, and other sort of um, websites and, and books and things like your podcast are that that it's great to hear about other people's process and how people became writers and how people became artists. It's wonderful. It's interesting, but it's not necessarily helpful to somebody who is looking for the way, because if, if the person wants to try to imitate it exactly, it won't work. Right. Yeah. So, um, but I, with that said, I feel very grateful for my trajectory because I'm glad that I cut my teeth on fiction writing. I think it's it's hard to explain, but I really think it opened the door for me and allowed me to do other things more easily. Like, um, I learned how to write fiction. So I learned all the technique and I learned, um, about kind of like opening yourself up on the page, um, without telling the truth, you know, but telling the emotional truth. I learned all that first. So when I got to nonfiction, I was able to bring my fiction writing skills to my nonfiction. And and for me, that was really helpful. The way I came to storytelling was I had, um, I teach, I was teaching a novel writing class. I still teach novel writing classes. And one of my students is Aaron Barker, who runs a great storytelling show in the city called the Story Collider. And, um, it was not long after the publication of Skinny, and so she said, will you, because her storytelling show is about science, it's stories about science, so she said, will you come to my show and tell the story about um, going to weight loss camp? And and I, I didn't even know what, what it really meant. I was like, just you know, like without, like not read it, just tell the story. She was like, yeah, you just tell the story. And I did it. And I was so hooked right away. And then it was like, all I've wanted to do since is tell stories. I mean, I still do all my other writing, but I, I mean, it's like, in a way I call this, you know, the storytelling a hobby, but it is just in other ways so consuming. I mean, I, I, I absolutely love it. Um, I had never performed before or had aspirations as a performer. I mean, I'd read my work, like when I was on book tour, I would read my work aloud. And of course I teach, so I'm, I'm comfortable, you know, to some extent in front of an audience, but this was like a whole other thing. And, um, as you know, it's just an amazing thing to be plugged into in the city. Well, it's a really unique container, right? Where you get to be involved in this kind of live experience Mm -hmm. with a really, um, 
a really gracious audience. Yes. You know. Most of the time. Most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Rather gracious audiences. People who are there because they love story. Yeah. And um, and having the audience kind of self-select itself that way really helps. Mm-hmm. You know? I not think like, so. Um, a crazy person on a carton on the college campus corner. Right, trying shouting. to tell a story. <laughs> yes. No, it's true. It, it is gracious. And, and um, it also... Um, has taught me a lot about writing, which is weird, but I mean, it's taught me a lot about concision because when you tell a story of the moth, for example, you have five minutes, you have to get your story down to five minutes. It's not a lot of time. And it, it's, it really teaches, um, teaches you how to do it, teaches you how to, to the discipline to just punch and get out. And, um, I think a lot of writers can use that lesson, Mm. you know? So what do you, what are your kind of creative mediums that inspire you? Do you read other novelists? I know for a lot of us, sometimes we don't do much in our own medium. We cross mediums for mm-hmm. inspiration. Um, how about you? My inspiration mostly comes from, or at least when I'm writing fiction, my inspiration comes from fiction writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I call it my writer's porn. It's the stuff that I keep my com- by, by, by my computer to sort of get myself going. Um, get me in the, it gets me in the mood to write. So it'll be different authors depending on, you know, just, oh, I sort of cycle through different authors over time. But um, some of the ones I come back to a lot, I would say, are Amy Bender, Antonia Nelson, Joy Williams, um, just to name a few, but there are so many. One thing that's great about that practice is there's a, it's almost like it's drawing you into the company of other writers, mm-hmm. you know, as you're writing, that there's this imaginary way, you know, that we can kind of summon each other's yeah, presence. That's really or... beautiful. I love that idea. Yeah. I think for me, it's also a lot about finding rhythm. Sometimes, you know, in the morning when I get up to write, I mean, I write pretty much every day. And when I, when I get up in the morning to write, sometimes it's just, there's so much other stuff on my mind or I didn't sleep well or, you know, whatever. Um, and, I can't really start writing until I find the rhythm and I don't even know how to fully explain what I mean by that, but it's just there. It's just something in my head and reading really beautiful fiction can sometimes help me find that rhythm. So, um, and, and then I'll feel at first, like I'm sort of channeling that other author Mm -hmm. and then that gets me into my, that, that gets me into my writing and allows me to hit my stride at some point. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about Skinny, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things I appreciated while I was reading it, and one of the things I keep thinking about even after finishing it, is I really appreciate the way you... How do I say this? You dealt with issues around body an image and food in a way that's um, not the traditional way to deal with it. I think I get frustrated when that entire realm gets run through this very narrow lens that says everyone who has any kind of struggle, it's all because they're trying to look like someone in a fashion magazine. 
And right. I just think it's an actually a lot more complex than right. that. And that you can have you can have struggles that are not related to trying to look a certain way. That it's it's just interesting how there are so many things. Um, and setting your story with through the lens of a protagonist who's dealing with grief and loss, and having that become a trigger for her, it's like more of an emotional. Um, it's more of an emotional struggle for her, at least in the beginning, yeah. than a concern about how people are perceiving her. Right. I mean, do you still feel like you're... I, I'm just wondering how that experience actually teaching in that camp has changed you. Like, do you feel, like, altered on the other side? Like, there's a way you carry some, some perspective or something like that with you. I, to be honest, like, or is it it's really not contained in mm. your personal history. Like, no, I mean, that, it's I'll, I'll say this and, and this is it. I feel sad that this is what I took away from it, but I feel pretty disillusioned, mm. um, by the diet industry. I feel specifically disillusioned by weight loss camps. Mm-hmm. Most of my kids gained their weight back afterward. And I think that's usually what happens. Um, because it's the diet industry and the diet industry doesn't work. Um, so that was one thing I took away from that summer. And I don't know what the solution is to that. I, I, I do believe there's a lot of rhetoric right now about, you know, eating real food and how the processed food industry, the food industry has, um, cause the obesity epidemic and I, I do believe that I believe that but I'm not really sure what there is what can be done I mean I think hopefully what's going to happen is that over time people will start to view processed food the way they came to view cigarettes and you know we sort of had that revolution I mean cigarettes used to be acceptable and now they're not and I mean, hopefully that something like that will happen, but I think that's going to take a really long time if it happens. And it doesn't seem to, we don't seem to be going in that direction. So I don't know. Um, so, so I felt a lot of disillusionment, um, on a personal level that summer was the most transformative summer of my life. And, um, I think, you know, which is in part why I was really inspired to write the book. Um, I got out of a relationship I'd been in for four and a half years. I had everything I owned in my car. I was at this camp and I did not know, like I knew what was behind me, but I didn't know what was ahead of me. And it was like, I was in this, this sort of halfway house for 10 weeks. And, um, when it was over, I moved to New York city and I've been here ever since. And so I, in a way think of everything in my life as before and after, Mm -hmm that summer, um, which is kind of an interesting, which is sort of symbolic. Um, because of course, you know, that was, that was sort of the mission of the camp, but it didn't quite work that way in the way they expected. (laughs) It was like an unintentional transformation. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the things about it too, that intrigues me. It's interesting to me that you had that experience yourself of having like in a 10 week span, a real transformational experience. And then you made that same kind of 10 week span, um, kind of the arc of your novel, because I think I'm, I'm just always trying to think about 
there seem to be two camps. Like, there are people who think that people never change. And then there's the camp that think that people can change. Mm -hmm. But I think how people change is a bit of a mystery Mm -hmm. still. And I struggle even myself to look at the people around me because I tend to be on the optimistic side, right? So I like to believe that we're all just, like, growing and becoming better people Mm -hmm. all the time and all the time and all the time. But then occasionally you'll have someone, maybe even someone, like, very close to you, and you'll witness them on, like, a real severe downward spiral, and you'll watch someone devolve before your eyes. And, um, And so I think that's interesting, too. And with the camp counselor character... You have a variety of characters, so they're not all just, like, becoming better and better and more amazing all the time. No, no. And you show how, like, you can put all these people in the same exact environment, and people, even in the same environment, are not going to respond the same way. Absolutely. And I I really like to write about microcosms like that. Like, I like to write about insular, um, insular communities that in some way reflect you know, the world or, or larger communities or families. It's like a social science experiment. It is. Because you're like, okay, what if we control all these variables? What? Yeah. And everyone at the camp has the same schedule and the same yeah. diet, right? Absolutely. And you can watch the other variables and see how they ebb and flow a little bit. Absolutely. And then you let them out at the end or whatever, <laughs> let them out at the end of the summer and everything goes back to how it was, you know, as if it never happened. Um, which I think is pretty true to human nature. And I mean, you know, my first book was about yeshiva life. It was um, young men studying in Jerusalem um, in these these centers for Jewish texts, you know, becoming very, re- trying to become very religious. And um, there's sort of a similar, in that novel, there's sort of a similar um, upshot is that you leave there and, and you change. You're no longer of that environment. And it's hard to sustain um, being very religious when you're not in a religious environment. And, and the rabbis in that novel are always warning the boys against that. You know, if you, if you leave, um, everything's going to go downhill. Well, I think, too, it seems to speak to this, like, overwhelming power of culture. Like, whether the weight loss camp students are going home to their family cultures. It's like that's a very powerful force too. Or wherever they go after school. It's like the culture, it it really, it's so powerful that then you're like, okay, it's not just about creating a diet industry to create change. Right. Or it's not just about creating a religious school. It you're You start addressing things that feel like just such a large scope at that point, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not about... Um, it's it, Yeah. I mean, changing the... Like you were saying, changing the external environment, um, changing the factors in someone's environment is not the whole... It's not going to solve anything. Or it's going to solve some things for a while. Yeah. But, and then I even think that the reverse is... The reverse is true, too, though. I think about both of us moved to New York City, and there's a way that being in this culture, for a lot of people, feeds you 
as an artist or as a creative, it's a really um, interesting place to be alive right now and to be working. And you feel like you're not alone. Yeah, definitely. And the, the other side of it is that it can be very distracting. <laughs> but, um, but, but definitely, I mean, it, you know, I think it's why we were all drawn here. I mean, I think New York's always been for the weirdos and it's why we all wind up here. It's like, of course, this is where art is being made. This is where it starts. And um, I feel so lucky to be here. I, you know, I used to see it as this, um, you know, this sort of like glittering land that I could never get close to. Everyone always says, when you talk about moving to New York, everyone always goes, Oh, it's so expensive. And it's like, everyone has their doom and gloom about why you can't move to New York. And then, and then you do it and it feels like such a victory, you know? Um, of course it's not for everyone, but, but you sort of know if you need to be here, I think. And, um, and then, um, but, but, you know, I, I always used to visit my friends here before I lived here, and I would just, I would go out, and I would meet people, and I would think, I met 10 cool people tonight, you know, and then I would go back to wherever I was living and think, it, it's so, it, not that I had a hard time making friends, but I definitely had a hard time finding those people that you have a real connection with on a regular basis. I thought that wasn't possible. I thought those people came around, you know, once a year or once every five years or something. And in New York, I find them all the time. And I, that is like the greatest gift Mm. to me. And I think that, um, for me, I'm, I think it's because, um, of the circles I run and the artists and, you know, there's, there's a connection there that, I haven't been able to replicate anywhere else in the world. Not to be like so New York centric. I know there are other great places to live, but I, for me, it has just been um, kind of a lifesaver. Um, are there any projects or stories that you're dreaming of telling next? Um, I always have a, a bunch of things in the hopper. I have a hard time talking about stuff before I do it, though, and or while I'm doing it. Um, so I'll have to say it'll be a surprise. (laughs) How about you? Um, yeah, I'm the same way. I can usually, I I can usually do a couple sentences, but then I'm like, please don't ask me too much, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. because I think it, um, I like to not, I like to say what I can, but I guess I feel like somehow it's like my creative energy around it leaks out Mm -hmm. a little bit every time I have like a long conversation about it. So I try to like, yeah, exactly. You know, I think actually there's, um, a mistake that is easy to make as artists and it's that well, we're working on something and we love it. And we're in that part of the process where we feel like it's genius and it's going to be our breakout thing and, and nothing has ever, you know, come close to this before this is it. And so we want to show someone and I think it's a mistake to um, sort of let the ego into that beautiful creative process because you show someone, why are you showing someone when you're right in the middle? Because you want that person to say, you're right, this is it, this is your big moment. And of course, you're not going to get the reaction you want. And then what will happen, your creativity might fizzle and the thing is dead in the water. And that's a shame. And so even when I'm feeling you know, a strong urge to show some, to show people my work when it's not complete. I, I have learned that lesson the hard way many times. So I really, um, try not to do it. And I would, I would recommend that to, uh, to others, if, especially if you've had that experience one, once before, and you know what I'm talking about, really try to keep it in mind. Well, it's also like a very fragile period where, yeah, 
people's words can be really discouraging. Yeah, even unintentionally. Yeah, and um, it's so interesting. I just think about how usually when I'm in process, I swing back and forth between two ends of the pendulum where I'm either like, this is going to be amazing. Right. Or, oh my God, what was I thinking? Right. And I'm not usually in the middle. No, no. You, I'm usually on one side or the other, yeah. so I try to do it quietly. Right. You know? <laughs> right. No one needs to be part I of try that. I not to <laughs> bounce back and forth on Twitter all day long. Mm-mm. And then, um, and if I'm having real trouble, then I'm talking to my friends, but it's about the pendulum mm-hmm. piece and not, it doesn't really usually have anything to do with the work. Right. Right. Um, I heard uh, a writer, Colin McCann, say years ago something that I really loved. She said, if, if you're working on a piece, of course you're going to have that. You're gonna, those things are going to happen in your mind. And at some point, it's just not going to be working. Whatever you're doing, at some point, it is not going to be working. And that is the point where you want to abandon it but it is up to you to wrestle that thing into submission. That's how he put it. And I thought that was so great. It's like, it's yours. You made it, you know, own it. Um, and um, that advice has done a lot for me because there, I mean, you know, I think a lot of artists have um, one problem that we all, a lot of us uh, suffer from is getting partway through something and then dropping it, mm-hmm. right? You and some things should be dropped, but not, but a lot of the time it's like you, you say, I ran out of steam or, oh, I realized it wasn't any good. But what if you finished it first and then made that decision? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it could be very surprising. And I've found, you know, breaking through that, those times of um, feeling discouraged has often resulted in my best work. That's great advice. It would never occur to me to stop midway. But as you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. This yeah. It's a lot. Um, thanks so much for talking to us today. Yeah. We can find you online at dianaspeckler.com. Yep. Right? Uh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Retrospective. I'm your host, Jen Lee. Meet me back here for more conversations and stories about where we are and how we got here on Retrospective.